Please stand. From the great gifts you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I made you all clap. Who knows what will happen next? Could be some dancing up in here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, I think Miss Jeanette's the only... There might be two or three other lifelong Presbyterians here, but you might be the only. Uh, everybody in this church came from different back. Oh, another one, Miss Luann, Miss Susan. Well, of course, Ryan. He was trapped here the whole time. No, I'm sure. uh, you know, there's kids here that they, they grew up here their whole life. They were born here. They're still here. Their kids are here now. That's a wonderful testimony to the nature of the covenant, which is one of the first things that we'll talk about. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, so we had, I, I want to explain to you all this Reformation Day Harvest Festival Halloween again thing that we had because sometimes it's hard to understand these things. And uh, of course the old, the old Presbyterians, they did away with holy days. They didn't have any holy days. The Lord's Day was a holy day and every day was holy, but they didn't have special days set aside to saints. So they didn't celebrate St. Peter's Day, and they didn't celebrate St. Lutatius Day. I made that one up, but the names are hard. You guys know what I'm saying. Uh, and so they didn't celebrate St. Patrick's Day because, you know, of Roman Catholicism and the saints. Here's one of the reasons they didn't want to start binding people's conscience to things that were mere human innovations and made up by people. And one of those was All Hallows' Eve, or what they called All Souls' Eve, where they celebrated all of the saints. And that was the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg to kind of get rid of those ideas. So we still celebrate it, and the neighborhood celebrate it, and frankly, kids like candy. So, you know, you look around here, and you don't see a seething mass of people. It's not a huge church, right? But I love this, especially, you know, all of you, including Mark and, uh, of course, uh, Dan Marshall, but all of you that serve on that committee, that outreach committee, it has had a powerful and palpable effect on this community. I had people come in this year that have been coming for five years to that event. And there was this one lady. I know she doesn't listen to the sermon, so it's okay. We'll talk about her. <laughs> uh, she was telling me how much she enjoyed it, and she'd come every year. And I've seen her since she had one little baby. Right, that she brought, dressed as a, a bumblebee five years ago. And now that kid's getting pretty big, and she's got two more. And this is her church service for the year, our harvest festival. And she says, I was so glad to be in church today, Pastor. And I'm thinking, we're just eating Snickers. <laughs> right? Uh, there's, there's these little covenants that you do with the community, and one of them is that they kind of look on a church 
as a source of salve and healing and peace for the community. And so they come to see a little of that. And they're very happy when they come in the door and they don't see fangs and pointy ears and we're not like, ah, get out of here. It's very important, not just that they come to church on Sunday morning, but that every time they drive by, they feel good about this place as a place of peace and rest for their family. Once somebody brings their children here, it's all different, right? Somebody might come in themselves, but when they bring their kids and say to their kids, this is a safe place for you, that is a great gesture of goodwill toward us that we repeat toward them. Uh, It's getting bigger and it's getting a little crazy. We couldn't make enough food for people. Uh, I think people started coming an hour early. We were basically already full by 5 o'clock. We didn't have any candy out. We didn't have any games. I'm just like, why don't you kids go jump on that thing? So they went and jumped on that thing. Uh, But... We, by being here as a church, have made a covenant with this entire community that we will serve them and we will love them. If necessary, we will feed them, but we will always offer them the grace of Jesus Christ, right? So these things are not really small things. Uh, And I don't expect folks to necessarily come here on Sunday just because they breach the threshold of the door and come in here uh, with their kids. But there are people, a lot of people, that don't come here on Sunday that do think of this as their church. And, you know, I think it's a little strange. But many of them tithe. Isn't that strange? Which is not a big deal. You know I don't ask for money. I've never had to. You guys take care of us just fine. But they even give to us because they kind of think of it as their church. It's a wonderful thing. So that's why, you know, we do a lot of outreach events. We do more outreach events than a lot of churches that are a lot bigger. We do them with a lot less folks. We don't spend a lot of money, but we get a lot of bang for our buck because we love these people and they know it. They know that there is love here for them. Uh, And there's other ways to love. So the first issue, uh, this sermon is called uh, The Five Traits of a Christian Marriage. Some of those traits are common to every marriage. As we know, marriage is holy to God, whether it is Christian or not. In other words, if people are not Christians and they get married, God respects that vow, that lifelong vow. But it is a covenant that they're making together. We call it a promise, right? We get up and we make promises. How many promises have you made through life? What's one of the most important things to God that's in the Ten Commandments? Keep your promises. Right? When we get to here in chapter 5, the first thing that Paul says in 5.1 is, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now in that, he's setting the context for what comes later. You always have to know the context. That is the context for when he's going to talk about marriage. The first thing he says there is, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. So these things are essential to the nature of marriage. Once you make that promise, that vow, that covenant between another person and with your God, you are swearing that you will not look at, you will not allow yourself to be attracted to, you will not enter into any kind of relation with any person besides this person for the rest of your life. Amen? So that's the prequel. Then we get to this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I know that's been bent and twisted and weird things have been done with it, right? Uh, when a person gets into a position of power or authority, that's when you find out what their real stuff is. Am I right? That's when you find out what they're really about. They might have been about all kinds of things, but give them a little power and watch them go crazy. So I know that's been bent and manipulated. But notice, the Apostle Paul only gives three verses there about wives' duties. Then he's going to give it to the guys. He's going to hammer them. He's going to beat them like a redheaded stepchild. It's coming. I promise you. But that vow you make, the reason that the old vows had this in it is because the Bible had it in it. Now, I know people like to write their own vows now, but those old vows were not bad. In a Christian view of marriage, right, it's not going to be 100% reciprocal. There's a created order through which these things are expressed. We'll talk about it a little more as we go on. But right now, just about that vow, this is the vow that the Christian is making that they will be obedient to this kind of an outline of this life. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Believe it or not, love is a higher standard of respect than respect is. Love has more in it than respect. Respect your husbands, okay. You know, uh, people have a problem with that these days. You know, uh, uh, the world has done its work on the church and made that a bad thing instead of a good thing. Respect for anybody is always a good thing 100% of the time, but we don't really like that. But love carries more respect in it than just the term respect. Love carries in it dying to the self for the well-being of the other. Remember, the context is being imitators of God. That's what the husband is called to. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. So the purpose within Christian marriage is that the husband will make the wife holier than she would have been had he not been a part of it. Notice in the old confession, one of the things it says is, you're not allowed to make a vow of celibacy. It's interesting, right? In the old days, they thought that was the ideal life. And then along came the Reformation, and they started holding up Bibles and saying, no, the ideal life is two people who come together within the bonds of marriage to walk through this life together. And what's one of the reasons they thought that? Well, we'll go to part two, a friendship. We don't usually think of it as a friendship because so many marriages these days do not hold forth a friendship, a companionship as an ideal. In the old days when they asked what were the reasons for marriage, one of them was to avoid sin. Another was to raise up godly lineage and godly children. But the third was companionship and friendship in this life. In other words, they understood this aspect of it, right? In the beginning, God made the animals, then he made the highest animal, if you will, the highest thing in all creation was man. And he made Adam. And Adam went through, and because he was the king and lord of the earth, not in a completely different way than Christ would be later, he went among them and he named all the animals. He had sovereignty over everything. And God saw that it was not good that the man be alone. And so he put him to sleep. And from his side, from his rib, from his own flesh, he brought forward partner with him to be with him through life notice this was all before there was even sin in the world marriage is not a consequence of sin marriage is a consequence of life god did not design a man that it was good that he be alone 
And so marriage is also about companionship, friendship, that you have that person closer than a brother that you can walk through this life with that can be a friend to you. Men tend to be not super good at friendship. We're good at football and perhaps beer. We're good at a lot of things, but we're not good at friendship because we see it as a weakness that you need someone. God is saying right here, you need someone. You need someone to take care of you. You're not going to do well alone. You weren't made that way, and even before sin, you were not made that way. So it's not even a consequence of the fall. And a relationship. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now I'm going to read you the Bible. The Bible is way more spicy than you think it is. The Bible is not a game. It's not a myth. It's not cute stories about gods flying around on flying horses. Nobody has little wands and there's no wizards in it, right? It's a real book for real people going through the real world in real circumstances. So the Apostle Paul talks about all kinds of discomfitting stuff. Chapter 7 from verse 1. Now concerning matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was the questions they asked him. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise to the wife her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, for those of you that are like, you can't read that stuff in church. It's the Bible. We're here to read this stuff in church. Apparently, somebody thought y'all would need to hear it someday, right? Uh, you know that I did marriage counseling for more than 20 years. I don't mean I was in marriage counseling for 20 years because I'm that messed up. I mean, I'm talking about on the side of this. Uh, one of the first questions you get around to is what is going on in the relational aspect of that friendship, right? Because it's not like just having any other friend. It's not. And this aspect of it we've sometimes called making sure you all do your homework, how are you going to get a good grade if you don't do your homework? This aspect of a marriage, it is a wonderful part of it. Is it a, like a terrible thing if I were to tell people, you know, uh, do nice things for your husband? Try to make your marriage a pleasant one. Work hard on it, right? It's not, that's not wrong, right? A lot of people would say it's wrong, but you know what? I want marriages to succeed and thrive. I don't want them to fail. And if both sides aren't trying, the natural tendency of gravity is for them to fall apart through time. Especially for those of you that got uh, married when you were like 20. By the time you're 40, you're almost a completely different person. But you're still married to the same one, right? So the natural tendency of people is to grow apart unless they are purposefully and meaningfully intending to stay growing together. <laughs> And one of the ways this does, it's talking about it very clearly here, is because you have one person in your entire life with which you have a certain level of intimacy that goes beyond mere friendship or mere spirituality. And this is a help to this. 
It's right out of the Bible. You can take it up with the Apostle Paul. You can write letters to him if you want. You can address him to Jerusalem. I don't know. Uh, but don't come to me and complain because I just read you the word of God. Are you going to hate me because I read you the word of God? Woo! I'm starting to feel Baptist up here. I'm starting to feel the heat. So God put this thing together for this purpose. It's not a wrong thing for you to pursue your husband or your wife. There is a certain place in which God has given for all of those feelings and appetites and attitudes and desires to come together as one. And don't let them go to any other place because that is how you will be destroyed. Now, as soon as I brought up, you know, I let people know we were talking about this because I know people, they're not going to want to be here for this sermon. One thing is, we all know that divorce is very common in the world, in the United States especially, and in the church also. I'm not talking about that. I know people that every time I say you have to pursue your marriage and you have to try to stay married and you have to work on it, you work on it, they feel personally attacked because they've been through a divorce. Well, you know what? Lots of people have, right? It happens. It happens, and you still have to go on with your life. Whoever you're married to now, that's who you're married to, and that's who I'm talking about, right? That's the way that works. The things you've gone through and the sufferings you've gone through and the causes of all those previous events that happened in your earlier life, I can't do anything about all that, but I can do a lot about right now. This marriage is the one that God has his hand on you and that you are to pursue with all possible vigor. You can't cure things from 20, 30, 50 years ago. It's just too far back, right? But you do have to succeed in this right now by putting all of your power and energies and attitudes and aptitudes into the marriage you have to make it a happy one. To make it a happy one. So don't ever feel like, because I get up here and I talk about marriage and I encourage marriage and I discourage divorce, that that's some kind of a condemnation on you, because you just can't do that to me. It's really not fair. My duty is to preach you the whole counsel of God, no matter how much you hate it. Woo! Okay. Point four, it's an adventure. It's a planned adventure by God. Everybody's life is really basically the same. Have you ever noticed that? The reason that all the movies are the same, every movie you see is the same. There's somebody walking around, some normal person, and then some kind of a weird thing happens, and they go through some adventure, and then there's some resolution, and then they live happily ever after. And the reason that's the frame for every movie is that is the classic example of the design of a life given by God. You're born. You're born into a family at some place, at some time, in some circumstances. And you grow within an environment, having a mother and a father and grandparents. And, and they all love you and nurture you and take care of you and raise you into the person that you're supposed to be. And then you go on from there and eventually you meet that right person. Whether you're a boy meeting a girl or a girl meeting a boy, there's something that happens there. And all of a sudden boys are not quite as stinky and girls are not quite as yucky as they used to be, right? There's a change that happens and that is the person. And you marry them. And it's lovely, and it's wonderful for a while, and then it becomes hard work, right? This is not a different story for you than for other folks. Then eventually, because God designed it that way, these two people that were from two different peoples and two different families, they come together and they join those families by their own blood in issue that are part one family and part the other. So that everybody on earth is related by both blood and and marriage related by Adam and Eve and then through the children of Noah so that the entire earth becomes one family of people. This is God's design. 
then eventually those kids, they get to the place, wow, this is terrifying. They get to the place where they want to go out on their own. And hopefully they're going to take the values and the faith and the things that you taught them and go out into the world and live their life the way you train them to live it. But hypothetically, sometimes it doesn't always work out in a neat fashion, does it? Sometimes it's a little complicated. Sometimes you have to keep praying for them until they're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years old. But the general rule is they come to the Lord sooner or later. But for the most part, what we want to see them is have that pleasant relationship with Christ through life, even though we have to struggle in prayer. It would not be completely not like God to make sure that you have to struggle in prayer for your children and your grandchildren. He might be working in you just as much as he's working in them. And then you get to the place where things start to get a little gray. I'm starting to get a little gray up here. Most of these are my kids. My kids did this to me. Sooner or later, one of you is going to go first. And they're going to go to be with the Lord. And you're going to spend a certain amount of time dedicated to God and not dedicated purely to the service of immediate family. And then eventually, you go too. And when you go, you regain everything you lost in this world. We cannot talk to the dead. The Bible precludes it entirely. We may only speak to God. But the idea that the people in heaven don't have any idea what's going on on earth is a little bit preposterous. What, they can't even make a phone call? What do you think they're doing up there? They're just like standing around, waiting for the end of the world? It's a more wonderful thing, not a less wonderful thing. So the idea that our ancestors have to do with what's going on here on earth and that know what's going on, well, very probably true. Because people have gone there and spoken to them and then have come back from there, including the Apostle Paul and sooner or later Jesus Christ. When he arrives with his church on the last day, he will be bringing them all with us. All those we've lost, grandparents and great-grandparents, but also people so far back that we don't even know they exist but they were praying for us then. So this whole life is an adventure. We get to this place where, back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Notice he's using a physical and natural analogy because he's trying to appeal to your own greed and self-interest. The Bible does this on an ongoing basis, using a natural analogy to speak of a spiritual truth. Do men care about their own bodies? Well, not the ones I know, but some of them probably do. I'm just saying that, you know, why do you eat? Because you're hungry. Why do you take a bath? Because you're stinky. Why do you take care of your wife? Because you're taking care of yourself. Now, let me say the most unpleasant or unpopular thing that I'll say in this entire sermon. You've read the Bible, right? Leadership and the ultimate analysis in the Bible, it's male. What that means is the man will be held responsible for everything that happens in his family, every sin that happens, not because he personally did it, just by way of proxy because he's the leader. And the leadership has the ultimate responsibility for the things that happen on his watch. The expression of himself within his children, what they do, what they're taught, these things, God will have the man meet him one day 
and will say, what have you done with the children I gave you? What did you do with the wife I gave you? Just like Adam was in the beginning, and just like Moses was, and just like Jesus was, so are you. Hate to put the burden on you, but you knew it had to happen, right? You are the man, you give forth the issue. When the Bible goes through, it talks about the wives and says that they're lovely wives and it blesses them and it says that they're holy women and it blesses Mary and says that she was the holiest among women. But the one that has responsibility for the well-being of the family, the immediate responsibility that God's going to say, what did you do? It's always the guy. I want you to feel the weight of that because it'll change the way you speak and think and do things. You will be responsible to God, immediately responsible someday for everything you've said and done in regard to your family, that's your household, that's your kingdom, that is your world, if you will. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh." This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It doesn't imply there that the wife's not also supposed to love her husband. You're not getting off the hook that easy, right? But it's harder to be in subjection than it is to be in a ruling position. The way the Bible outlines this is not that these two are equals. One of the reasons that the Bible outlines that homosexuality is such a difficult thing, such a terrible thing, and also at the same time that it's completely irreconcilable with the nature of of marriage that a man be married to another man is because there can only be one ultimate leader that represents Christ in any relationship, and a man is required to hold that position. The very nature of being a man created in the image of God means that a man can only marry a woman. This is why, you know, all of these marriages that are going on around in all these strange configurations, well, they're not a real marriage. You might have a piece of paper, but it doesn't have the inner things, the essence, the being, the ontological basis for being a true and real marriage because it's not one man and one woman who came together as it was in the beginning. I know that's a difficulty, you guys know what I'm saying. It can't be real because it's ontologically impossible. The mystery is profound, he says here in verse 32. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. It means you've got to die for her. You've got to go through whatever it is. You have to suffer all things. You have to believe all things. You have to love all things. That person you're with, that's the one God gave you. Every once in a while, somebody comes to me and they feel cheated. This, maybe this isn't the one. Maybe there's somebody else out there for me that's the real one. What real one? What are you talking about? The one that put the ring on your finger? That's the real one. I have cheap rings. Several of them. Because, you know me, I lose them on an ongoing basis. And I don't want to lose an expensive ring. But I found this one at Walmart. Are you, are you serious? Did he get his wedding ring at Walmart? Several. <laughs> but I love this one because it has two silver bands, and right in the middle, it has a gold band. Because a Christian marriage is Christ-centered. 
and Christ is the gold. And Denny and I, we're just the silver. We've come together in this thing. But if it's not centered on Christ, what hope does it have? I would much rather have my wife think the best person in the world was Jesus than think the best person in the world was me. I would rather have her love Christ with all her mind, heart, and soul. Because then the marriage will be fine, right? We want to encourage our wives and make them strong enough to love Jesus Christ with all their heart. Because that's what will make the marriage good. So a Christian marriage is Christ-centered because Christ is at the center of everything. You want to be strong? You want to have good relationships? Do you want to be happy? Point your wife to Christ. Point your children to Christ. Then you'll be happy because things will be good. When things wander away and they start to focus on themselves, we start to detour them because they're getting a little too holy, right? One of the biggest problems in a marriage is when the wife gets too holy and the husband's getting a little uncomfortable. I'm talking about Christian marriage. But how many women by their holiness have led their husbands to Christ and been participant in their ultimate salvation by being a little too holy? The number is very high, isn't it? Uh, I've told you guys before, most of the guys that come into a church come in because of their wife. It's just true. They're the great evangelists that bring them in. Uh, So that is not a justification for dating evangelism, especially teenagers. Do not take it that way. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the holiness of the wife is endemically and deeply intrinsically attractive to a man. A man is attracted to the holiness of his wife because he's attracted to Christ in her. And so that makes her very easy to love. Uh, After this today, we have a special meal where we will also be celebrating the 50th anniversary. I know many of you have had 50th anniversaries here, uh, but this is this one. So we're going to have a great meal and we're going to celebrate this marriage. When couples have been together for 50 years, what have they been through? Anything? Maybe a few things? Maybe most things? Maybe everything? Uh, I love the fact that, you know, when, when Jan and Howie fight, even though I'm sure they never fight, she stops feeding him. I love that. Because that shows such great love. You know, uh, no, it really does because uh, men expect to be fed by their wives. You know, uh, my kids have noticed many times that once in a while I'll ask Denny to make me a sandwich, and she drops everything and she runs and makes me a sandwich. My, now, my wife graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science. Then she got a juris doctor. She is a, she is like you know the, the the career woman. She knows stuff. She's trained. She's disciplined. And she'll run off and make me a sandwich. It's ridiculous, right? She could call anybody and put it on her credit card and have them make me a sandwich. But she loves to serve me in that way because I'm her guy. I'm her man, right? So, you know, it's not demeaning to her. It's nothing she doesn't want to do. She loves that aspect of service. And so, you know, sometimes the kids will bring up, why would you make mommy make you a sandwich? Because, you know, they watch TV. They know what feminism is. Uh, (laughs) And I tell them the truth. I don't have a shred of power or ability to make my wife do anything. If she does it, she does it because she loves to do it and she wants to do it. And frankly, I like sandwiches. (laughs) Uh, But she doesn't have to, does she? What would I do if she said no? 
I make my, yeah, I make them myself, right? I don't like have a thing where I can be like, Denny, I'm the pastor of the church and you have to make me a sale. You can't do that. That's not real marriage, is it? But notice that we serve each other and we don't take on to each other pride or arrogance or our sphere of authority in order to manipulate each other. And these little things like taking care of each other and feeding each other and loving each other are a wonderful expression of the lesser things of the gospel itself in that we die for each other, aren't they? Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, that you have given us to each other in this way, Lord God, that we have made promises and vows. Let us keep those vows, Lord God. Strengthen us in them so that there's nothing we would rather do than strenuously keep those vows that we've taken and that were given from you. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. People of God, please rise as we sing number 419 in your hymnal. 419. thing where you, oh, I didn't bring anything, or oh, I forgot, or oh, I didn't know there was a potluck and all that. No, you come over there and eat. We always have way more food than we have anything to do with. Make sure, I want you all to do something. Uh, uh, I want you all to promise me that you'll meet somebody today you have not met before. Raise your hand. Okay, you're all sworn in. Meet somebody today you haven't met before, find out their name and all of that. 
I'm going to pronounce the blessing, which I don't really have any power to do anything with the blessing. I can bless as much as you can. But at this particular place, at this particular time, Jesus Christ gives his blessing. And so as a representative of that, I will stand and I will raise my hands. And you don't bow your head because it's not a prayer. You look up and you receive the light of Jesus Christ. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. Amen. Hi, Lord.